to At The Drive-In. I'm Tamira, and this is a podcast where I talk about movies from the 30s to the 60s, and I look at things such as the plot, the themes, the characters, funny anecdotes, and pretty much anything worth mentioning about the movie. Today I'm going to be looking at a movie called Morocco, which was made in 1930, and it was directed by Joseph von Sternberg, and it stars the amazing Marlene Dietrich, uh, Gary Cooper, and Adolphe Menjou. This is one of the most conflicting movies I've seen in terms of whether I enjoyed it or not, which I know sounds kind of funny, but I started off watching it and I was in awe. I was thrilled by what I was seeing. I thought it was absolutely amazing. But then at the end, I was super confused and, and pretty pretty disappointed, to be honest. I had like, I, I definitely had like a pretty comical frown <laughs> when I w- after watching the the, the ending because it was it was confusing. The whole movie was basically confusing in feelings. I was confused, <laughs> so I think you'll see why. I'll try to explain it. Uh, maybe maybe it won't be as confusing for anybody else, but I was confused. Anyhow, without further ado, I'm gonna start with the summary of the movie. So we find ourselves in Morocco in the late 1920s, and we're following the French Foreign Legion who have just returned from a campaign. So this is towards the end of the Rift War, which was fought between Spain, which was colonizing Morocco, and the Berber tribes of the Rift, which was a which is a mountainous region at the north of Morocco. The French intervened towards the end after several defeats inflicted on the Spanish, so that's why they were there. Among the troops, we meet legionnaire Tom Brown, who's played by Gary Cooper. I guess he's not supposed to be French, you know, with that name. He's basically this random Anglophone just going along for the ride. It's not really explained. Maybe people could join the French Legion from anywhere. In fact, probably you could volunteer. I'm not sure. Anyhow, the scene cuts to a ship bound for Morocco where we come across Amy Jolly, who's played by Marlene Dietrich, who is a nightclub singer seeking a fresh start in Morocco. And she catches the attention of a man called Labissier, who tries to sidle in close and tickle her fancy, although he feels pretty badly. He offers her help, but she refuses, and then he gives her his card, because he's pretty insistent, telling her to contact him anytime, and she thanks him, walks away, tears it up, and tosses it into the sea, which is a power move if I've ever seen one. (laughs) Upon reaching Morocco, Amy pretty much immediately gets a chance to perform at a pretty well-known nightclub. And coincidentally, or not coincidentally at all, Labissier is there, much to his delight to see her again. And we also see Legionnaire Tom Brown. Okay, so the next part of the movie that I'm going to be talking about is the part that I was in, that had my mind blown, basically. Okay, so hold on to your seats, because this had me reeling. So, Amy walks onto the stage in full tails and a top hat, looking glorious. She's met with booze because the people in the audience really like making the newcomer feel welcome, clearly. But she ignores them and she plays it really cool. Brown had been eyeing her with great interest as she came on stage and she moved around a bit. I should probably mention that Brown is a philanderer. He went to the joint with a chick who he's intensely ignoring at this moment as he boldly checks out the new performer. Brown starts clapping in support of her, shoving people around him to get them to stop booing and eventually the place does quiet down and she starts singing her number, which is called When Love Dies. Everybody is unsurprisingly enraptured, and after she's finished, they start clapping enthusiastically. During the performance, she'd been walking around, and she ended up at a table where a woman was sitting with a flower in her hair. So, Amy asks politely if she can keep the flower, and the dame says, yes, of course. 
Amy then leans down and kisses her on the lips, and the room dissolves into a fit of giggles as she withdraws uh, with that famous smirk of hers. It was really cool seeing this in a movie from 1930. I mean, just imagine. Uh, it's, 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 it was really cool, but the thing is, I didn't expect this, but it honestly wasn't that shocking in the end. It felt really natural, to be honest. But anyhow, really awesome when you think about it. Then Amy walks away, still smiling devilishly, and she goes back on stage and looks down at Brown, who had been looking at her very intently this whole time. She then tosses him the flower that she got, smirking, and he catches it in surprise. And after that, she walks off the stage and gets ready for her second performance. So before she comes back on stage, Brown puts the flower behind his ear and rests his head in his hands. It is seriously a great shot. I recommend anyone right now to search Gary Cooper with flower in the movie Morocco. It is definitely worth your time. Then she comes back on stage to sing her second number, which is called What Am I Bid For My Apple? Kind of cryptic, honestly. And this time she's wearing a swimming costume. This is also very much appreciated, unsurprisingly. While she's still singing, she is selling apples and she approaches Brown. She manages to sell him an apple and under the pretense that she's giving him back his change, she hands him her house key. I do not advise anyone to hand over their house key to somebody they've never met before. It is probably not for the best. But it works out in this situation, still don't do it. After the show, Brown makes his way to Amy's house and along the way he's stopped by the adjutant's wife. He's called Caesar, and they just call her Caesar's wife because obviously a woman isn't even worth being named, apparently. So Caesar's wife stops him. And it's very obvious that they've had an affair in the recent past, which he's very eager to continue, but he is not interested in it anymore. So Bran pushes past her and he enters Amy's house, and that's where they become formally acquainted. None of them really reveal anything about their pasts, but it's clear that they're both embittered and that they blame the opposite sex for that. After seeing a picture of Amy with a man, Brown asks her if that was her husband. She scoffs and said that she had never found a man good enough to marry. And then in a flirtatious way, she says that maybe, maybe you can change my mind about that though, huh? To his credit, Brown straight up says that he is definitely not the right man for that, that he's basically a douchebag and that no one should put any faith in him. Which, you know, kudos for the honesty. In spite of Brown confessing that he's not a decent guy at all, Amy starts liking him anyways, and she asks him to leave before anything serious can happen and before she can start liking him. When Tom leaves, he comes across, sees his wife again, who pleads with him to go with her. Unbeknownst to them, both the adjutant himself, Caesar, is watching them and he learns about their previous affair. In the meantime, Amy changes her mind and decides she wants to be with Brown, so she seeks him out. Brown happily leaves Madame Caesar and starts walking back to Amy's house with her. Madame Caesar manages somehow in the space of two seconds to hire two ruffians to attack them. Brown manages to beat them up and then he picks up Amy bridal style and carries her to her home. And that is the end of that wild night. Cut to the next day when Brown is brought before Caesar who accuses him of assaulting two innocent civilians. Amy manages to clear him with the help of LeBessier, who is friends with Caesar, but Caesar tells Brown that he knows about him and his wife, and he is imprisoned and awaits court martial. LeBessier knows how much Brown means to Amy, 
By the way, I just want to remind everybody that this legit, the day after they met each other and apparently Bran already means a lot to Amy. Anyhow, LeBasir knows this and he convinces Caesar to lessen the punishment. So instead of a court martial, Brown is released from the prison and is ordered to leave with a detachment commanded by Caesar into the desert. Brown is pretty sure Caesar agreed to let him off so easily because he could uh, get him killed without him actually being actively involved in the murder. And because Brown is pretty sure that he's going to be killed by being sent on a suicidal mission by Caesar, he decides that he's going to desert the Legion because he's tired of fighting and he's crazy about Amy and he wants to run away with her. So the next day, while Amy's getting ready for another performance, Labasir comes in and gives her a very expensive bracelet. She attempts to refuse it, saying that she can't take it, of course, but he insists, saying that she is worth no less. Honestly, Labasir is a pretty nice guy. Ignoring the fact that he randomly saw her on the boat and without even having a proper conversation decided to devote his life to her. At the same time, Brown is headed for Amy's changing room, planning to tell her of his plans to run away. He stops outside when he hears Amy and Labasir talking and starts eavesdropping. He hears Labasir propose and Amy refuse him. Labasir asks her if it's because of Brown and whether she's in love with him and she says, I don't know, I hope not, which I think everyone can uh, relate to that sentiment. <laughs> At that, Brown knocks and comes in and Labasir leaves them alone to talk. They embrace and Brown informs Amy about his plan to get on a train to Europe and he asks her to come along with him. She agrees to this. Before they can discuss the details, Amy is called to perform and she asks Brown to wait for her and then leaves. Once she's gone, he notices the expensive bracelet that Labasir had given her. And Brown has this moment of, of reflection and decides that Amy would be much better off with a rich guy than with him. So he writes a little message on the mirror saying, I changed my mind, good luck, before leaving. Nice. Amy, not at all pissed off at his abrupt departure for some reason, goes to see his company off the next day. We see Brown surrounded by a group of women and he and Amy shake hands and then he's off. As she watches the Legion leave, she notices a group of women getting ready to follow them. And she turns to Labasir and asks him what those women were doing. And he explains that these, this group of women follow the men into the desert because they are so in love with them. Amy says that they must be out of their minds to do such a thing, which you'd think, you know? Anyhow, at one point during their march, the Legion comes across a machine gun nest where the enemy is hiding and shooting at them. And Caesar orders Brown to deal with it. Brown is obviously unsurprised that he was chosen, seeing that he was sure Caesar would want to kill him during this expedition, and this was an obvious suicide mission. But much to his surprise, Caesar gets ready to follow him. So they're trying to locate the enemy and where the, the shots are coming from when Caesar draws his gun. He's behind Brown, by the way, and he's intending to kill Brown from behind, but he ends up being shot dead instead by the enemy. So tough luck. At that point, we leave the Legion and are back with Amy, who has started a relationship with Labasir, although it's pretty clear that she's still thinking about Brown. She's heartbroken at how he treated her and starts drinking heavily. Labasir goes to see her in her dressing room and he finds her singing merrily because she's really drunk. He asks her if she's happy because she's heard from Brown and at this she goes up to the mirror where Brown left a message and removes this giant plant that she had placed in front of it. So she shows Labasir the message Brown left her. 
And she keeps up the act that she doesn't really care until suddenly she just loses it and throws a glass against the mirror. Labasia tries to console her and in the end, Amy accepts his proposal. We then see them at their engagement party. I'm not sure if this is on the same night or whether a few days have passed or what, and time seems to be pretty irrelevant in this story. So I can't tell you when this is all taking place, but anyhow, we're at their engagement party. And during this party, Amy learns that Brown's legion has come back as she quickly leaves the party to look for Brown. And I have to say that this was a pretty shitty thing to do because it wasn't a party with lots of people standing around where she could just slip away unperceived. It was a small party and they were all sitting at one table and she just got up and left telling Labossier in front of everybody that she had to go look for Brown. It's not the nicest thing to do to your fiance, even if you don't love him. But once outside, she learns that Brown has stayed behind because he had been wounded and that he was recuperating at a hospital. Amy goes back and tells Labossier that she is leaving immediately to find Brown and Labossier decides to accompany her. I can't tell if this is extremely generous or just plain unhealthy for him. He's definitely whipped. He's madly in love with her, yet he is helping her to be with the one she loves. And when asked why he does all those things, he says, I just want her to be happy. Honestly, I think that's pretty, pretty cool. I mean, if he, he loves her so much that he doesn't even care that she doesn't love him. She just wants her to be happy in any way and with anybody. I mean, that's, that's pretty intense. You know, that's, that's a nice thing, right? I, it sounds kind of, sounds like very painful. You know, if she, if you love somebody and then you're seeing them love somebody else and you're trying to, it, it seems all a little complicated, but if it really makes him happy, then I'm happy for him too. Anyhow. Once Amy arrives at the hospital, she learns that Brown isn't actually there and she is informed by one of his friends that he had been faking an injury to get out of combat and that he had been frequenting a canteen nearby. So we find Brown with a dame on his lap, looking pretty mopey and carving Amy's name into the wooden table, which I'm sure the owner of the place will really appreciate. Brown does care about Amy in his own way, even though I don't know if it can be called love, but that's just my opinion. And I'm gonna be talking about that later. So when Amy arrives, he quickly covers the carving and looks nonplussed at her arrival. He asks her if she's planning on getting married and she says yes, and he encourages her hiding his actual feelings. The unit is then called to assemble and he leaves her without saying goodbye. He comes back pretty quickly though, because he forgot his knife. No, it wasn't gonna be a romantic whopping kiss. It was because he forgot his knife and she remarks that he didn't say goodbye to her and he asks her to come see the unit off at dawn and then he's off again. She stays sitting at the table, pretty miserable, and she's sifting through all the junk on the table when she finds her name carved into the table. Now, apparently this is the utmost demonstration of love. It's not as if adolescents across the decades have been carving their celebrity crushes' names onto trees or doodling their crushes' name into their notebooks. Yeah, apparently it's this uh, very powerful demonstration of love, which, okay, why not? And Amy goes to see him off and they say goodbye in a pretty formal way again. And at this point, Amy is pretty torn as she watches them march away. And because she knows that he's in love with her because of the name carving, which again, is probably not the best evidence for proving that somebody loves you, but whatever. And she hates to see him leave. And when she spots the group of women marching behind the unit and she makes up her mind, can you guess what's gonna happen? Cause I certainly did not. She rushes behind the group of women, taking her shoes off and catching up with them, ready to follow Brown through the desert wherever he went. And that's the end.
that's the end of the movie. The end, which killed me a little bit because I was so disappointed. But anyhow, I just didn't expect that. I guess I should have seen it coming from a mile away, but I just did not expect that at all. <laughs> anyhow, let's take a closer look at this movie in general and let's talk about the good parts and the not so good parts. Contrary to what was thought at the time, the movie was not actually shot in Morocco. It was shot entirely in Southern California. Although the favorable depiction of what was thought to be Morocco elicited a very pleased response from the Moroccan government. The setting of the movie is of course inextricably linked to the interaction of the characters and their feelings. I should probably say that this is a pre haze Code movie, which is pretty evident in many aspects. And so sexuality is addressed pretty much head on. There's no real skirting around the edges. I mean, of course, this is all referring to the context of the time. We can't really compare this movie to 21st century standards, where movies such as Fifty Shades of Grey exist. You know, kind of different. <laughs> but pre-code cinema is insane and it's intensely awesome. And I definitely hope to look into some more pre-code. So we're supposed to be in Morocco, which means the, the climate is hot. So there's heat and there's sweat. And these represent the desire and the tension between the characters, the constant heat from the sun, for example, is like a, a perpetual reminder of their love and attraction. And it shines on them relentlessly. It's also represented as a land where there's nothing to lose. Men join the Legion to forget their past and women come across the sea also to find a new life and to forget about their past. It's almost a place that somehow transcends the conventional. This can clearly be seen by the way that gender roles are exchanged and exploited in the movie, which I will look into a little more later. The cinematography in this movie is particularly commendable because there's a play between light and darkness, which was perfected throughout the movie by cinematographer Lee Grams and Sternberg himself, actually. And they both used distinctive lighting methods to emphasize Dietrich's features and also apparently to hide what was considered a slightly too bulbous nose, which I can't see and honestly, it really does matter. Also some trivia, Sternberg was more interested in shooting Dietrich and making her more prominent in the movie. So he'd have a lot of shots of Cooper looking up at her, which obviously emphasized her importance. Cooper was not pleased by this, to the point where he actually complained to studio bosses and Sternberg had to cut it out. But I mean, can you really blame him for wanting to focus on Dietrich? Anyhow, those are some facts about the rolling of the movie, but now it's time to get into the real interesting stuff, which is the parts of the movie which particularly struck me as being awesome. So, it's the main thing about this movie which I find so interesting is this playing around with gender roles. I should say that I'm gonna be using terms such as feminine and masculine. And I, I wanna note that I mean these in the stereotypical sense of, of traits and characteristics that have been associated with femininity and the masculinity, but are mostly made up and are assigned to gender based on preconceived ideas that hold no water. Just to put that out there. So of course we have Marlene Dietrich strutting onto the stage wearing that wonderful suit. And she exudes confidence and control and power. And before long, she captivates the audience. And Dietrich in a suit has been referred to as the supreme lover of male, female, and beyond. In this scene, she represents both the fluidity of gender and the fluidity of sexuality. 
She doesn't fit in a box, and she doesn't have to fit in a box to be able to dominate the room with her presence. Amy plays the role of gentleman, however, even going as far as pecking one of the ladies in the audience, and this isn't taken very seriously, it's true. Everyone bursts out laughing, and it's a pretty interesting reaction, because it is laughter. It's not gasps of disbelief or disgust, and nobody's looking scandalized. I mean, everyone is surprised, but nobody reacts in a negative way. And it's interesting because it feeds into this idea of the supreme lover, which, which has been attributed to Amy in this movie. The fact that Amy can get away with kissing a woman because in a way she's transcended the boundary set up by society to regulate the way people act and feel and the way that gender roles apply in society and the way that they have to interact with one another. Here, it doesn't really matter because she, she represents this fluidity, right? And it's quite lighthearted. Nobody really takes it seriously. And it's very refreshing, to be honest, because these rigid rules that apply in society of how someone has, has to behave and everything, they don't apply in this situation because she kind of doesn't, she goes beyond that. And that's very refreshing. Then there's another part of the movie which I found very interesting. And this also has to do with the way that the, that the genders are basically interacting with one another and everything. And that's the, the way that Amy and Brown in particular interact. So this is specifically talking about the first scene uh, because this is obviously the part of the movie where, which was pretty mind blowing. So there's the scene where Amy tosses the flower to Brown. Now this can either be seen as a woman giving Brownie flower or because she's in a suit and she's acting like a, like a gentleman, a man giving Brownie flower. Again, she's sort of in the in-between of gender, so she's not either one or the other, but both are possible scenarios. And both are pretty astonishing if you think about it. But what's more astonishing though is Brown's reaction. At least in my opinion, is I thought I was, I was shocked because Brown is presented as a macho man. He's tall as hell and we always see him having to duck when going through doors and you know, tallness is often associated with ideal manliness, you know, for some reason and he's also a player. So you have this guy who's given a flower by a woman dressed in a suit, just to simplify things, let's say. What do you expect them to do, right? Probably throw it right back or let it drop to the floor or whatever. I mean, I know guys who would have probably shrunk away from the flower as if it were a poison dart or something. And I'm not even kidding, but Brown, Brown does not do that. Brown catches the flower and he places it behind his ear. Now, when I saw that, I was like, dude, that's some Disney princess shit right there. I mean, it really blew my mind because take everything that, for example, okay, of course that Brown represents, which I just talked about, you know, macho man and everything, but then take also the, the everything that Cooper represents as a leading Hollywood actor and all that entails, you know, the manly aspect of it and what it takes to be a, a the, the face of Hollywood, basically. And here he is, wearing a flower behind his ear, resting his head on his hands and gazing up at Amy with a pleased and dreamy smile. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty freaking amazing, you know? And the thing is, it literally doesn't matter at all. Like the fact that Brown is wearing a flower, which is something typically associated with femininity, doesn't change anything. It just makes you realize that assigning objects to a particular gender is just dumb because it doesn't really change the way you think about them. What's also pretty interesting is the fact that Brown is automatically attracted to Amy, even though he first sees her wearing a suit. In, in old movies, women particularly had to be very beautiful 
and usually they were in long gowns and they wore jewelry and they had all their hair up and everything. It was all the works, you know? And all those things in a way added to her overall beauty. It wasn't just about the face. There is a very specific image of the beautiful woman in old movies and this involved everything. As I said, dresses and the cute little hats and the jewelry. But here, Brown is checking her out in full tails and a top hat and he's digging it. It's true that she does show up in a swimming costume afterwards, but honestly, Brown is already hooked at that point. So it, it kind of deadens this notion that a woman has to look a particular way to be perceived as beautiful or follow a specific set of rules to be perceived as beautiful according to Hollywood standards. And it's quite refreshing, honestly, but it, the movie still, it doesn't change that. In the movie, woman is still mostly meant to be some, uh, regarded as an object of beauty, you know, regardless of whether in a suit or a swimming costume. Basically, her main objective is to be beautiful and pretty much nothing else, <laughs> which is, it is a bummer, but I think we ought to celebrate the good things in these movies, you know, because if we just focus on the bad, then we'd not enjoy it at all, because there's a lot of bad shit in these movies. So anyhow, let's just count our victories. And I apologize if that was all a little complicated and messy. It's hard to articulate concepts about gender because I already find the whole thing about gender so murky to talk about because it's very hard to, to define what it is to be male, female, you know? So in talking about female male characteristics is just is very is already tricky. So anyhow, um, it's just, there's a lot of gender role switches, which is refreshing. That's basically what I was getting at. So I apologize if it was much more convoluted than that. So I also think it's worth looking into the characters a bit. And by that, I mean mainly Brown because it's, uh, it's hard to understand Brown, really. I mean, he's a guy who comes across as not really giving much of a shit about anyone, really, or anything, and who's just there to escape from his past and fool around with some ladies. And before I was talking about how I didn't think what Brown felt towards Amy could be called love. And what I meant by this is that Brown's big demonstration of love was giving up Amy because he realizes that LaBissier could give a better future, which does sound like a big show of love. But the way he carries it out leaves a lot to question because during the scene, Brown really doesn't look affected when he decides to give Amy up. He, he picks up the expensive bracelet. He looks at it for a bit, then he shrugs and he just picks up the lipstick and writes the goodbye message on the mirror and he, he just takes a powder. He gets out of there and he looks nonplussed. I see him as, as personifying an attitude of, uh, whatever, you know, okay, who cares? And okay, it can be argued that he was trying to hide his true feelings, but hide them from a who? There was literally nobody else in the room. And I don't know, I wasn't getting the whole, oh God, I'm so heartbroken, I have to leave the love of my life vibe from him. I really was getting the no shits given. And Brown's attitude in this scene is, it relates to the whole aspect of the movie, which kind of bothers me, which was the part that struck me at the end, like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Basically, okay, say Brown does actually love Amy as much as she loves him. Brown's love basically culminates in him leaving her behind, whereas Amy's love culminates in her willing to sacrifice a life of luxury and comfort to follow him across this desert. I mean, that's quite a difference. And you wonder like, okay, why is there this discrepancy? And I think the fact that Amy ended up trudging after him across the desert and Brown just 
decided to leave her behind. And generally the situation which is represented in the movie of this group of women following the men, it, it, I feel like it all leads up to this idea that women are controlled by their emotions to the point where they would sacrifice everything for love because they cannot live without their man. Whereas the men, even if they're in love, have a hold of their emotions and they can march away, you know, no problemo. And okay, I understand that sounds very pessimistic. And you might say that in this situation, the men didn't really have a choice because if they deserted, they would be killed. But that didn't seem to bother Brown at all when he proposed escaping to Europe. I know it sounds very cynical and it's a pretty uh, rough way to look at it, but honestly, that's the vibe I got. That was why I was so disappointed at the end of the movie because the last thing I expected was for Amy to go after Brown. It just didn't suit her character. I thought it was completely out of character. Maybe I didn't understand her character, but anyhow, I was not expecting that. So you should have seen me at the end. I was like, no, they're not gonna make her run after him. That's not gonna happen, is it? Oh, holy shit, it happened. Honestly, it was it was a surprise. It took me took me um, by surprise. But I will say though that Labasier is a bit of an exception to this whole idea that I just presented about you know women being slaves to their emotions and all that, because in a way he is willing to do anything for Amy just to see her happy, and so he is giving into his emotions of love that he's so in love with her that he'll just do anything. But he's always shown in control of himself. He we never see him get carried away. And it's funny because Amy also, for the most part, is pretty in control throughout the movie. Um, that's why the ending was so bizarre because it just didn't seem like it suited her character. Maybe it was supposed to show how love really changes a person. Maybe, I don't know. So we will see her behave kind of erratically and abruptly like when she finds out that Brand Brown's legion came back and she wants to go looking for him. But then when she's interacting with Brown, she acts super cool, like she's really in control of herself and really composed. You know what? It's all pretty confusing at the end. I, I feel like it would have been so much simpler if they just were straight with each other and told each other how they felt, but I guess that never happens in movies. Anyhow, I just realized that this episode was basically not me really giving information about this movie, but pretty much me just questioning it and being like, I don't understand what's happening, but... So I apologize if you were expecting something a little bit more in depth. Sometimes I just uh, want to be honest about how I, how, how I experience the movies because I honestly don't really have the answers for many things. In fact, I'm pretty much not the person to be going to for answers. Having said all this, I do think this movie is definitely worth talking about because it is very memorable and honestly has some amazing stuff in there that I've never seen before. The flower thing left me flabbergasted. I did not expect that. Maybe it wasn't a big deal, but I, it left me mind blown. And if you just think about it, how, how many times have you seen a guy wear a flower behind their ear? I certainly have not seen that, you know. There was a flower craze back in 2014 where people were making flower crown edits of their celebrity crushes and of boy bands. And that's pretty much the closest I've seen to a guy wearing a flower crown. And it wasn't even real. So I thought the whole flower thing was pretty damn cool. And I'm glad it was in there. So I am glad in the end that I watched this movie. Even though the ending could have been a little better, you have to say. Anyhow, thank you so much for listening. I apologize that this episode was pretty much a mess. I, I thought I had a lot of things to say about the movie, and honestly, I did have a lot of things to say, but I didn't manage to articulate them very well. I suppose I didn't realize how difficult it was to talk about such an abstract concept as gender. 
But anyhow, I hope that it was fun at least exploring this movie a bit. I'm curious to know what people thought about it. I'm curious to know maybe somebody loved the ending, maybe I'm missing something, but honestly, I was not uh, very impressed by it. Anyhow, thank you again for listening. I hope everybody is well during these weird times and I hope everybody is washing their hands and have a very good evening. Mm -hmm.